Good morning. So good to see you this morning. For those of you that are expecting Ephesians, then that's in two weeks. Today we start a two-week series with you called Better Together. We talk about community uh, every every February together as a church, and so we want to continue that tradition. So grab your Bibles and your devices today, and you can turn to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament for a moment. You said, well, Sam just read the book of Romans, and I know that we're going to get there as well, but we're going to take the bulk of our teaching this morning from the book of Ruth. And you say, Mark, are you preaching the entire book of Ruth? No, I am not, but we want to cover the narrative this morning because it is a great narrative on relationships. Also reminding you that next Sunday afternoon is our Connect Night. If you're wanting to connect with one of our connection groups, then it's a great opportunity for you to do that as well. Next Sunday morning, Nathan will be preaching to part two of our Better Together series. So I call this today Mara R or Moab, and that will make sense in just a moment. The book of Ruth is an amazing book. If you have not read it, then it's four chapters long. I encourage you to go home, carve out some time this afternoon, and sit and digest this great narrative because it's a story about relationships. The main characters, well, there is Ruth, of course. There is Naomi, which is Ruth's mother-in-law. And then there is Boaz, who is Ruth's boo. I mean, that is her man. And, and we know at the end of the story, they end up getting married. And there's a whole story behind all of that. But the beautiful thing about the book of Ruth, these four chapters, is that, that behind all of this narrative, then there is this powerful story about God. There's this amazing story about God and how God works in the lives of people, and yet very specifically how God works in the lives between people like you and I. And so what I think very interesting about the book of Ruth is that that God is only mentioned a couple of times in the entire book, all four chapters. And when you look at books like, well, Esther, you look at the book of Esther, God is never mentioned, but yet we find God orchestrating these lives through his providence. And that's really what the book of Ruth is about this morning, that God is working when we can't necessarily see God working. That's important that we understand that, that God is working when we can't necessarily see God working in our lives. So it reminded me of a text as we are taking a break from Ephesians, from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. I have to go back and grab that this morning to kind of connect all this together and it says in Ephesians 1 and 18, having the eyes of your hearts, next to the word hearts, write the word understanding. Same word, neck, having the eyes of your hearts or your understanding enlightened. That means that it is a supernatural work of God to enlighten your heart in this understanding of God that you may know what is one, the hope to which he has called you. That is purpose. So you can write purpose in there that you will know what purpose God has called you to. And the second thing is this, that what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And that is that God sees you as his own inheritance. And when I see this and I frame this with a book of Ruth, it's an understanding of how God has purpose in our lives and how God feels about you and I. And so there are times in my life that I say, well, is God really working? You know, I don't see this physical, physical manifestation of God working in my life. And so Paul addresses that in the book of Ephesians. It's what Ruth is all about. But sometimes I think our spiritual vision, you know, becomes more 2020 when we have a greater understanding of God's character and nature. And that's exactly what Paul is teaching us in the book of Ephesians this morning as well. That there's more to, uh, I think there's, there's more that you and I need to understand about God. And it is God's will. We've learned that through Ephesians. It's God's will that you and I understand and you and I know more about his character and his nature. Because the no, more I know about God, the greater my trust level is in him. And when my trust level is greater in him, then I can move with purpose within my life. So I thought about this a lot about trust level and about knowing God. So my Selah, 
or our Selah, I guess. Uh, she, my granddaughter, she's two years old. And she is, as we say in the house, in the South, she's a hoot is what she is, right? And, and so she is just absolutely funny. And so she says this thing to me. She says, Papa, up, down. And when she says, Papa, up, down, what that means is that she wants me to carry her upside down. And so it's a very odd thing, right? I'm walking around the house and I have Selah that her legs and her feet are up here. Her head is down here and I'm holding her tightly and I'm walking around the house and she loves this. I don't know why. I don't understand what that means about her being an adult, but yet she loves this thing, right? And, and so then now she says that she wants me to run with her upside down, right? And, and that doesn't seem to be a good idea, does it? Now, what I realize is that I would not trust any of you in this room to carry me upside down, much less for you to run carrying me upside down, right? It is a recipe for disaster. And so I, I thought about this a lot. Why is Salem so comfortable with me not only carrying her upside down, but absolutely running with her upside down? It's because she trusts me, Right? But what I realize is that trust is built on something. So what is Selah's trust built on that would make her comfortable in me running with her upside down? It's because she knows me as her papa is what it is. And because she knows me as her papa, it's the way that she sees me. And she sees me that I am in control of those moments. If she only knew how little control I had, right? She may not want me to do that anymore, but she sees me as her papa. So she knows that I'm in control of those moments. And she knows, secondly, that I am good because I'm not going to drop her and then stand back and laugh thinking, oh, that's the funniest thing in the world. I've just dropped my two-year-old granddaughter on her head. So that's not it at all. So she knows those things about me. So what's your point? It's how we struggle with God sometimes. Is that we know certain facts about God. We know one fact that God is sovereign. And that is God is in control of all things at all times. We know that. The second thing we know about God, we know that God is good. But those things go together, sort of like peanut butter and jelly, right? The danger in our lives is when we separate those two facts that we know about God, that of his sovereignty and his goodness. Because if we only see God as being sovereign, that he is in control of all things, then we can somehow and sometimes think when things are not going well in our life, well, God is absolutely a cruel God or a mean God. He is unjust like mythical gods of Greek mythology because he has no regard toward humanity And if he doesn't do what we want him to do, then who's going to call him out anyway? Because he's sovereign. But if we only see God as being good and only see the goodness of God, then theologically what that is called is called open theism. And what open theism means is that God is not really in control of all things. God is in control of some things, but God is not in control of all things But yet his intentions are always good toward you and I. So what that means is that sometimes when things happen in my life, in your life, that we didn't see coming, God is just as surprised as you and I are about those things that happen within our life. And when I looked at the book of Ruth, I thought, well, that's the book of Ruth. It's just played out in relationships It's how you see God in relationships within your life. Because some of you are in relationships. I'm not talking about just dating or being husbands and wives, but I'm talking about friends. I'm talking about doing life together as a community, as a faith community this morning. And so we find ourselves in these relationships and we wonder sometimes, is this just by chance? You know, am I just working with this person because we're in the same office or we do the same kind of work? Or am I uh, a roommate with this person because I was just assigned to them by the college housing department? And so we realize or we fail to realize that, well, God has a greater purpose for us in life. We do. And sometimes and I think most of the time, if not all the time, yes, these These things are designed by God for us. But when we separate God's sovereignty 
And his goodness is when we find ourselves in trouble. Because when relationships in our life get taxing, and they will get taxing at some point, if we see God as being sovereign only, then we think, God, what are you doing? Why are you punishing me by being with this person, right? So this has to be, God, you're cruel, and somehow this is punitive because I've done something wrong in life, so evidently you must be punishing me. But if we see God as only good, then God is only good if our relationships are going good. But have you ever thought, what if God has you where you are for purpose? Yeah. What if God has you where you are for divine purpose? And I frame that in the context of our relationships. So it made me think, of that text that Sam just read in the book of Romans. Let me read it to you one more time. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Can I stop for a moment and say this to you? God never promises that all things are good. God does promise, though, that all things work together for good. Understand that, right? And if you've lived long enough, you know that not all things are good. You know that for those who are called according to his purpose. So God does have purpose for our lives. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He said that there's something greater happening in our life, even in the midst of our relationships, when they are challenging When they are challenging, when you are challenged, even by the person that's sitting next to you this morning, that there is greater purpose in those moments of your life. And he goes on to say, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he justified and those who justified, he glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us. Who can be against us? And so I go back to what Ephesians says, that we need our eyes open to these truths this morning. That the reason that all things work together for our good is because of His purpose. Understand that. Not ours, but yet His purpose. What do you mean? It's His glory first. It's His glory first, our joy second. So life is about the glory of God and not about ours. Life is about the glory of God first and not about our joy. Does God want us to be joyful? Yes, God wants us to be joyful. But His glory first. Understand that. Because from His glory simply uh, disseminates all of those other things, joy and fulfillment and happiness within our life. So it's his glory first is what he's teaching us. But not all things are good, but all things work together. All things work together for his greater good. And that is what fulfills me and you and brings joy in my life, in your life and purpose within my life. But let me say to you this in reading this text, God does not call us just so he can have a front row seat at our suffering in life. Now, understand that. That if you're painting God with that brush, then you're seeing God only in his sovereignty. You're taking away the goodness and the graciousness of God. So we have to keep those two together. He's sovereign and he is good. And so what I realize is he doesn't call us just so he can sit back and watch you and I suffer. That's not it at all. But he says very plainly here in the book of Romans, he says, but it is so we will conform. What is he talking about? Conform to what? That we are formed in fashion in his likeness. You see, there's something greater happening in my life and your life. And it's being played out in relationships when they sometimes are taxing and trying in my life. And that is that God is working a greater purpose where you find yourself this morning because he is conforming you to look more like him. You said... Well, Mark, you have no idea the relationships in my life. And if that's true, then I am on the fast track to look just like Jesus. Right? Yeah. And I think when we're in these taxing moments and relationships, 
then we tend to dismiss God's work and we want to bail real quickly. And that's the story of the book of Ruth. And we want to get out of that. And God says, wait a minute. No, stay where you are because I am conforming you. I am molding you into my image. Now, for a sidebar for a moment before you get all crazy on me this morning, right? And you get out the pitchforks and the torches. Then can I tell you, then there are healthy boundaries in your relationships. And that's a whole different sermon. And that's not really the sermon in the book of Ruth. But there are healthy boundaries and you know when those things are destructive in your life and you have to place some distance there. But it doesn't mean that you stop loving an individual or you stop praying for them or you stop interjecting in their life. But yet there's a whole different sermon there that's not Ruth. But I wanted to say that to you. Because some of you are already thinking that and you're going to dismiss everything I say beyond this point, right? Say, Mark, you have no idea what I'm dealing with. Well, let me give you the narrative this morning. And you find yourself in this narrative. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Love the book of Ruth. It is absolutely amazing. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and their two sons... The man's name was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But um, Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. Those took Moabite wives, and the name of was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there ten years, but both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. I stopped to make a point. Life is not always fair. Isn't that truth? Life is not always fair. Though you and I do live in a broken world. Understand that. Because there is nothing that I find in Scripture, where Naomi deserves where she is in Moab. And then verse 6 says, And then she arose with her daughter-in-law to return, uh, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now let me explain to you for a moment, because I can't read all four chapters to you today. Elimelech takes his family from Bethlehem. Bethlehem, the word means house of bread. There is a famine in the house of bread so that he takes his family and he moves them where there is bread, and that is Moab. But here's a thought. The Israelites and the Moabites, they don't get along very well. Why? Good question. Because the Moabites are descendants of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters that took place in a cave while he was drunk. Now, the family reunion has never been the same since, right? Think about it. That makes for really awkward conversations. Read the book of Genesis chapter 19 and you can get more information on that. And so from his relationship with one of his daughters while he's drunk in a cave comes a son by the name of Moab. So the Moabites are this incestuous, idol-worshipping group of people. And Elimelech moves his family from Bethlehem to that. And I thought about this a lot. And, and I thought, well, this is another sermon within itself. How many times do we forsake spiritual opportunity for physical gratification because he doesn't stay long enough in Bethlehem to see the hand of God move and to understand what God is doing because God is bringing judgment on that of Israel by sending a famine to bring them back to him. And God does bring food to them again, but he doesn't stay long enough to see that. So he moves his family from Bethlehem to hell is what he does. You say, Mark, I know. I've made a move to hell before, right? And, and so I understand that. You say, but it's, this must be some really terrible family because it's not at all. It's not. 
In fact, in the Jewish culture, your name means so much. It describes a lot about who you are. And so Elimelech, that name means my God is king. How ironic, right? My God is king. But yet when a famine comes, he simply packs up the minivan and he takes his family to Moab where he can find some food. Naomi, oh, her name means pleasant or delightful or lovely. If Naomi was a southerner, then her name would mean sugar booger is what I thought, right? Yeah, I, 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 I kind of like the name Sugar Booger, right? Yeah. So if you're sitting next to someone this morning, you say, oh, Mark, this is a perfect, I know this is a perfect opportunity. I want to take it. If you're sitting next to someone this morning and they're your significant other or you want them to be your significant other, turn to them right now and say to them, uh, you're my Sugar Booger. Could you say that for a moment? Now, some of you said that to people that are really weird, right? I, I noticed some of you, and that's really strange. If you said that to someone you don't even know, this is a God moment, right? It, it really is. Yeah, this is a God moment for you. Take it. It's happening in church, right? And, and so, so her name means pleasant. I love that. And, and Malon, his name means sickness. Why would you name your kid this, right? This is like naming your kid the Asian bird flu or something. Why would you do that? Yes. And Chilion, his name means dying. I don't know what Elimelech and Naomi were thinking, right? This is, I mean, here's the, my God is king and sugar booger. And they're naming their kids sickness and dying. I, I don't quite understand that, right? But I begin to look, this is a great family. And what I realize, and I will say this to you, is somewhat of, of a sidebar comment. But yet I think it fits well here that decisions, that the decisions that we make in our relationships are never made in a vacuum. Understand that. You may think, well, I'm making this decision for me. Realize this. Those decisions are never made in a vacuum. They always affect and affect a greater community. The implications are far more reaching than what we consider at times and, and I look at this thing and I, and I think, well, here is Naomi <clears throat> and she's left with two Moabite daughter-in-laws. Her husband Elimelech is dead. Malon and Chilion, they're dead for whatever reason. We don't know, but they're gone now. And she's left in this foreign land that has no spiritual center. She has no church community to have a soft place to land. And I want to tell you, when you find and experience disaster in your life, you need a church community to fall back on. And she doesn't have one. That life is not fair. And if anybody tells you that life is fair, they're a liar. And they're sitting on a throne of lies. Ha! Yeah. My reference to the movie Elf, by the way. Yeah. It's not. So she has heard... That now they have food back in Bethlehem. And I, and I put myself kind of where she was at that moment. And I think she must be angry at Elimelech. I mean, he's dead now. But she must be angry at him and thinking, you know, if he just stayed there, maybe you would be alive. And maybe Malon and Chilion would be alive. But now it's me and, and I'm packing up the minivan and I'm headed back to Bethlehem. And I have two Moabite daughter-in-laws in tow with me. So let me read verse 15 to you. It says, and she said, and this is Naomi speaking to Ruth. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Orpha has gone back. She's gone back to Moab and she's saying this to Ruth. But Ruth said, and this is the first time Ruth speaks in the book of Ruth. And Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, she says, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God, where I die or where you die, I will die and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me or more also, if anything but death parts me and you, she says to Naomi. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. And I thought this is a great moment for Naomi to say, wow, thank you for accompanying me. This is a long trip. 
and I really need your company. She doesn't say that. Naomi doesn't say to her, Ruth, man, I was hoping that's what you would say. You know, what kind of what kind of snacks do you want for the trip? Right. Do you do you want some Sour Patch Kids? When Reba and I travel, we always stop and when we get gas, we always buy a bag of Sour Patch Kids because that's kind of like great. Right. And, and I've always learned if you're getting a little sleepy while you're driving, eat like two or three bags of those and you're good to go. Right. Yes. Yes, because your mouth is puckered all inside out and you're hyped up on sugar. No, she doesn't. Here is my point. Strong relationships are forged in adversity. They are. They really are. When adversity hits your relationships, what is the first thing we usually want to do? We want to bail. We want to be Orpha, right? We want to go back to Moab. We say, dude, I don't need this drama. I have my own drama. I don't need your drama in my life, right? And we bail. And that's not the model we find here. As Orpha does what is expected, Ruth does the extraordinary is what she does. She refuses to abandon Naomi, her mother-in-law, And that's the very first time that Ruth speaks. What legendary words that she speaks in those in in that those few verses. You say, but Mark, Ruth knows what she's facing. You know, she knows that eventually all things are going to turn out. okay. Ruth does not know that because Ruth yet she doesn't have the book of Romans. Understand this. So she's not aware of that at all. No, in fact, she's leaving everything that is familiar to to her and she's going back to Bethlehem. She's going back to a people that will look down on her for being a Moabite because they remember the story of Lot and his daughters in the cave and they still talk about it. So, so no, she knows Jewish tradition as well. And that is if you are a widow, then you can only remarry within that same family and And Naomi has no more sons to give her to marry. So she's finding that she is going to be facing a life that is uh, childless. She's going to be a widow and she's going to take care of her mother-in-law, perhaps for the rest of her life. What a great moment to make a mother-in-law joke, right? But I won't do that. I'll move on, right? Yes. Verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the and the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. I think she probably said like something like Mara. You know, she kind of said it like that, right? Do you know what the word Mara means? The name, it means bitter. Call me Mara. And then she says, let me qualify while I am, while I am, why I am bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And before you throw rocks at Naomi, you have to look at her life. You have to get this, Right? You have to see why she's where she is. So Ruth sees Naomi locked in bitterness. But she doesn't bail on her. Why? And I, I, I really wanted to know why, you know, I, I want to know why, because I mean, I who wants to be around that? So Why? Because Ruth is new in her relationship with God. She just stated, you know, your God is going to be my God. So she's very new in her relationship with God. And I thought, well, maybe it's because she doesn't have all the spiritual hangups that maybe we do sometimes if we've walked with God for some time. So she doesn't have all of that. Maybe her spiritual vision is yet fogged by religion in her life. Maybe she sees beyond the current situation to a God in Naomi's life that is bigger than all the suffering that her and her mother-in-law has gone through. And I thought about all of those reasons. And I thought, well, maybe God has spoken to Ruth. But if you look in the, in the book of Ruth, God never speaks to Ruth. 
So is it just her desire to follow Naomi? Is that what this is about? And can I tell you, there's something deeper here for you and I to see. Because what it is in this relationship that causes Ruth to stay with Naomi in the middle of Naomi's bitterness is it's Ruth's desire to walk in the ways of God. It's her pure desire for God. Even though she doesn't understand everything about God, even though she's very new to this God of Israel, even though she's new to this Jehovah God, that's all very new to her in her life. It's a pure desire for God. She accepts God's presence in her life and activity in her life, even in the good and the bad. She says to God, may the Lord do so to me. She recognizes that God is working within her even when she doesn't physically see God working within her. And that's enough for Ruth to stay with Naomi even in the middle of all of her bitterness. Do you see why it's so important for you and I to have an understanding of God's character in nature? It's so important because we cannot navigate these moments of our life and these moments of relationships that are taxing to you and I. We will not navigate them well if we are not understanding that God is working in our lives even when we can't physically see Him working. And there is a greater purpose than just the moment that we find ourselves in. And how many times have you and I wanted to bail in a relationship, push someone aside, distance ourselves from them because things get tough, because we're not looking at the character and the nature of God. We're not realizing that God is working in the middle of this. And here is Ruth, who just now comes to God and a realization of God, who comes out of Moab, who worships all kinds of idols. And Ruth can see that. But how many times is our vision of God so fogged by different things that we don't see God working? I think it's a moment for you and I to step back. It's a moment to realize how important it is for us to see and to understand God's nature and character. So can I share another text with you, this time from the New Testament again, the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. And I think this helps us to frame this really well. It says, for this very reason, make every effort, Peter says, to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. I want to stay here for a moment and tie all this together because what I realize is this, our, our, our faith, genuine faith, genuine faith is displayed, one, when we love God, two, when we love each other, and that love spills over into the world around us. There are three steps to all of that for our lives. And all these truths that Peter talks about in this verse, in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, they're all linked together. They're not random, but they all simply affect one another. And before Peter talks about love or affection or kindness, he talks about godliness. Why? Because godliness comes first. This is why Ruth says, my God or your God is my God, because godliness comes first. And I'm not talking about legalism either, but I'm talking about godliness before my benevolence, before my my care for the needs of others, before any of those kinds of things. None of those have any eternal value for my life if I detach them from a desire to glorify God in all of my actions. None of them mean anything. If they're detached from glorifying God in those actions in my life. So Ruth says, and I paraphrase for Ruth. Ruth says, even in your bitterness, Naomi, I'll care for you. I'm going to lodge with you. Your people are going to be my people. But none of this apart from your God is what she's saying. She said, may the Lord do so do to me and more if I allow anything but death to part us. Why? His glory first. Above everything else, it is God's glory first. 
How do I work through tough relationships in my life? I run off the fuel of God's glory first before anything else. And that's the energy that I need and I must have. That's the fuel that I must have in my life to love others in those taxing moments in relationships when people around me are bitter like Naomi, that Ruth can love her and refuse to leave her because she's saying this is about God's glory first. So here's what Peter's saying to you and I. He's saying that kindness and love must flow out of godliness. Kindness and love flows out of godliness is what he says. That he never leads you and I to think that brotherly love or kindness creates godliness in my life. And, and, I, and I wrote this down this week that loving you does not make me godly. I don't know if you realize that or not. Loving you does not make me godly or you godly at all. Those actions never create saving faith. They only demonstrate what God is doing with inside of us. So if not for the glory of God, even, even our best deeds are offensive to God rather than pleasing to God if we do these things outside of the glory of God. And then he says, I have to hurry. For this very reason, make every effort, he says. And I, I thought, why does Peter say that? For this reason, make every effort. And I think that it, it simply means this, because it's more difficult to do this kind of love and love well with other Christians than it is with anyone else. Why? Because you and I have higher expectations for each other than we do people that are non-Christians. And so this is much more difficult for you and I to do in this room. Because sometimes I think that it makes us feel even more righteous when we're the ones that spot sin or brokenness in other Christians' lives. And it makes us feel a little proud at times, I think, when, our, when it's our discernment that, we, that, how, that we're seeing other people struggle in their life and struggle in their walk with God and struggle in their relationships with God. And, and what I, I wrote for myself is this, that usually when God gives me discernment about someone else's brokenness, it's more often God prompting me to pray for them than it is for me to judge them or lecture them or even preach to them. Amen. Now that will preach, will it not? Yes, it will. That could be a whole sermon within itself. So how does this apply to Ruth? Because Ruth never says... When Mara, when, when Naomi says, Naomi says, hey, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Ruth doesn't come back and say, now, come on, Naomi. Now, you know the truth. The Lord is showing me and God has spoken to me about you. And he's told me to tell you to repent of your bad attitude. Submit to God for the joy of the Lord is your strength. She never says that to Naomi. What she says to Naomi is, Naomi, I am here for you. I value the loss that you have experienced within your life. I understand that because I've had that same kind of loss. Only death will separate you. The other daughter-in-law left you, but I will never leave you. I'll be alongside of you, and I will make your God my God because your God is able. Have you, have you ever been in that moment in your life where somebody comes to you and they say to you, do you know, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You shouldn't be feeling this way. And all of a sudden your feelings change from what you've been experiencing to all of a sudden you want to choke them. Have you ever been there? Yeah. That's, this is real life here. This is a real life narrative. 
What would Naomi have said to Ruth if she had given her a sermon? No, God is prompting Ruth in her young Christian walk with God to not preach to her a sermon, but yet just love on her and value where she is and to simply do all this for the glory of God and point her to God. Powerful. And then he ends with brotherly affection with love. Because there's this last step, and I have to talk about this for a moment with you, and, and, and then we finish together with a thought. Godliness first, because it's all about the glory of God first. And from that, I'm able to love you, even in the challenging times of life. It gives that depth to my love. It moves me on just from that blanket statement, oh, I just love everybody because you're lying because you don't love everybody, right? It moves me far beyond that to something that has some real depth and some teeth to it. It does. But what I realize is that this love, this kind of love, this depth of this kind of love has to start here between you and I. Because before you and I can ever say that we love the world or we love everybody or we love people that are different than you and I, we have to love each other well in this room. Because this place here is how we practice and develop our love for those that are outside of this room. And if we don't get it right in here, we're never going to get it right out there. It's not going to happen. Because it is the way God has designed it. So, Mark, what do I do in my relationships? What do I do in this contentious relationship that I find myself in today? Maybe it's a friend or maybe it's a spouse. What do I do? It's the last thought, and it's this. Give God some space to work. Give God some space to work in your life. When you read the book of Ruth, those four chapters this afternoon... Read chapter one first and sit there for a moment and just absorb everything in the situation because that frames everything. Read chapter one, because what we find is that in three more chapters in chapter four, we find Ruth is now married and she's married to a man, her prince in shining armor, her knight in shining armor called Boaz and she has a son and you discover in chapter 4 that Naomi is no longer Mara that that has left her that life has changed and God has worked but neither Naomi or Ruth know this in chapter 1 because they don't have the book like you and I have and Ruth thinks that her life is a life of singleness and childlessness because Naomi has no sons to give her. And her call is to care and to love for her, for her mother-in-law. I will urge you this morning, wherever you are in relationships, to give God some space. To give God three more chapters because God can change anything in any situation. Because the scriptures tell us that he is the author, the finisher, the perfecter of our faith this morning. Change is going to happen. How do you know that, Mark? Because God is sovereign and God is good. Life happens. Yes. And some of you in this room are in the throes of that right now. That life happens and I think that you can either change for the better or you can become bitter and call yourself Mara. But here's what I want to say to you. Because if you find yourself in bitterness this morning, don't give up and don't lock yourself out from God because God even works through and in the state of bitterness because we see God work this powerful miracle in the life of Naomi. Because remember about your life, as it was in that of Ruth and Naomi's life, that you can only see chapter one, but your God simultaneously lives 
in the introduction and in the conclusion of your story. So he's there and present every moment working on your behalf. Even when you can't see him working. He is there working. Because we find Ruth is redeemed by what the scripture calls her redeemer Boaz. As she dumpster dives in his fields to try to feed her and Naomi. Chapter 4, verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day. Hear these words for you this morning. Has not left you this day without a redeemer. And there's such a prophetic edge to these words as well. And may his name be renowned in Israel, and it's going to be, that he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons. Because when you thought that you had lost everything, you even had the most important. The writer is saying, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became her nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Tell me God will not restore what the enemy takes from us. He does. And they named him Obed. For he was the father of Jesse and the father of David. And when you have time, after you read the book of Ruth, go read Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. Because what we realize from Obed comes a king named David. And from a king named David comes the king of all kings. What a story. But how different would this story have been for Naomi if Ruth had left her in frustration? Because our decisions with each other in this room are never made in a vacuum. Because we are truly better together. If God can write a story like this, then he can write your story. Just how do you see him this morning? So for a moment, can I pray with you and pray for you? And so if you would take a posture of prayer, however that looks for you this morning, the important thing is that you are opening your heart and mind for God to speak to you. God, first of all, thank you for this amazing narrative for us this morning. A narrative that brings us back, Lord, to how we see you being sovereign and good. And because of that, God, we realize that you are continually at work in our lives. Even when we don't see you, you are working. That God, you are working in our relationships with one another. You are working in those contentious relationships that we have in life. God, you're even working in the lives of those that are in the clutches of bitterness. So, Father, is it by chance that we find ourselves where we are? Or is it for purpose? 
God, we realize that there are moments to set healthy boundaries. And God, we are not in any way devaluing that. But God, this is about our call to others this morning. That truly the most significant and strongest relationships of our lives are and have been formed in adversity. So, Father, let there be some depth to our love for each other. Because how can we love the world deeply if we're not first loving each other in this room well? So let it begin here, today, in our relationships with one another. That we say we are better together, but do we live like we are better together? And Father, never let us lose sight of the truth that you are the writer and the originator of our story. And so, Father, if we find ourselves in chapter one, that we know, God, that you are working all the way through to the conclusion. And so we trust you. We trust you with our life. We trust you with our relationships. So, Father, today, we give you some space to work. We give you some space to work in our lives, God. We rest in that and we surrender and submit this thing and this situation, this relationship and where we are. We submit that to you and we give you space to work for your glory. And your glory only. So work in our hearts and work in our lives. And Father, we give you thanks for